KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. That's the thing that gets me excited about coming to the Boathouse every day, is that I know that our group wants to work really hard, but they also seem like they're having a great time doing it, and they don't ever really complain. That's like, that's from an organizational standpoint, that's a really special thing when you have people that are aligned towards one goal. And our guest this week, Wesley Ng. He is the head women's rowing coach at the University of Pennsylvania, a job he's been in since 2015. And Wesley, thanks so much for coming in studio. I'm thrilled to be here, man. Thanks for having me. So let's start before we kind of dig into your career. I don't think a ton of people are familiar with rowing. Kind of talk a little bit about from a college standpoint, what your calendar is as we're recording this early October, what's happening and what will be the focus for the next few months? Got it. Collegiate women's rowing is a year-long sport. Then, So we basically start in late August and we go all the way to the end of May when we have the NCAA championships. There are 92 Division One women's teams, about 24 Division Two teams and about 42 Division Three teams and we're all gunning for the same end-of-year championship in May. So there's a head racing schedule in the fall. It's kind of like track and field cross country in the fall. Most teams will do winter training where they're really going to work on fitness and skills and things like that. And then you get into your spring racing season when things really start counting. How often are you in the water? And what I mean by that is this time of year and in the spring, weather's great. But obviously, you talk about it's year-round in the winter I don't think conditions in this area are conducive to hanging out in the Schuylkill all the time. But how much How much are you in the water? Yeah, you'd be surprised. We're on the water a lot. So in the fall, we go all the way until November 30th, and then we can get back on the water on February 1st. In between that time, we sometimes will go down to Florida or Georgia for a winter training camp. But as soon as we have open water and it's not iced over, we're going. And as the southernmost ivy, we are on the water more than almost anybody else. How much of training is on the water and how much of it is on land and how much of it is, I don't know if classroom teaching is, but like, you know, kind of give me like the, the pie chart of what you guys focus on, on how you and how you focus on sure. it. Sure. I think I would look at it as almost 60 to 70% of our time we would want to have on the water. There's just nothing that can replicate the feeling of being in a fluid environment and how dynamic it is and being connected to your teammates. The individual strength and endurance and all that other good stuff along with some technical video analysis that we'll do, that's probably in that 25 to 35% of the time. Not sure that adds up to exactly 100%, but like for them, some athletes need a lot more skill training and some athletes need a lot more fitness and endurance training. So we try and tailor it to each individual athlete. But hey, you can't go make a boat go fast without being in the boat. So from a video standpoint, like you guys are watching film, what are you looking for? Like, are you are you looking back at races? Like, what is the, the focus when you're doing that? Yeah, we split it up into either a individual technical analysis. So we're looking at how is biomechanically the person positioned in the boat to produce energy, right? to produce watts and get them to transmit to move in the boat. Um, and that can be things like grip and body angle and how people are using their legs and you know the breathing position, all that kind of stuff. Not unlike what a swimmer would do underneath the water. But then when it comes to the actual race tactics, watching a full race, 
you can definitely tell how our race plan matches up to another team's race plan. And you can kind of see how their boat is performing and how they're trying to differentiate themselves during a race. Because like you only really have to be ahead on the very last stroke of a race to win. And metering your energy out for the best pace, that's what we're looking for. And that was going to be my next question because like race plan, now I'm fascinated. Like what goes into that? Is it how much, like as you said, metering out energy like, all right, let's be consistent and steady early closing fast like how do you determine that and how different are plans for each race oh it's such a good topic because the one really differentiating part for us is that we're facing backwards so being ahead really has an enormous mental difference for us and a mental advantage that you can then apply and you can control the race from being ahead Whereas in track and field, if you're ahead, you're breaking the wind for everybody and that's like a harder place. You have to spend more energy to be there. The other thing is there's no offense or defense. So nobody can kind of control what we do on the water unless we let them. So there is a lot to be said about executing your race plan very, very closely and knowing that we've got to try and get our energy out at the most opportune times. It's about a six-minute race, somewhere between six and six minutes and 30 seconds. So it's very painful. Like it's not long enough that it's endurance and it's not short enough that it's a sprint. So it's right in that middle spot where you have to try and max out both strength and aerobic output. So how much in your plans, in your preparation, does the opponent matter as far as, you know, you're matching up with Harvard this week and Yale next week, like, does the approach change or is it almost solely on what you do, how you do it, the team chemistry and the opponent, I don't want to say is irrelevant, but it doesn't, your approach doesn't change regardless of who's on the schedule. This is where when we were talking off air about the difference between men's and women's rowing a little bit, that's where this is a little bit different. So men's rowing has more races that are either duels or tries so that are, they may see two other schools. And when you're racing in three schools, there can be more of an, a tactics piece where if you're ahead early, that you can control the race. In women's rowing, we're really trying to push for more six-lane racing. And so when you're spread out over these full six lanes, it's more of a time trial feeling. So the opponent may not matter as much. All teams have reputations and all teams have um, speed and results that we can draw upon to see, hey, does this team look relatively strong or relatively slow? And you can kind of anticipate what that will look like. But it's always a better strategy to just focus on yourself and get the most out of yourself. Your introduction to the sport, where, what's your origin story? Where did it start for you? I don't mean coaching. I just mean an introduction to, to rowing and you know, being on the water. Sure. I learned how to row in Toronto, Ontario. I went to a private boys' school there, Upper Canada College, which had a really amazing history in the sport. And I was trying to play any sport I possibly could. I wasn't very good at many of them, but I would try really hard. So between football and basketball and soccer, I was trying a lot of things. And my best friends at the time, they had joined the team. And they said, Wes, this is way harder than anything else you're doing. So like, we don't think you can do it. And so I got on and challenged myself and was like, hey, this doesn't seem that hard. I'm not getting tackled. You know, I'm not getting spiked. This is fine. And so I did that for the very first year, loved it. And the very next year, they both quit and I kept going. So the feeling of 
the fitness part, the idea that you could master something, it wasn't something where somebody else was impacting the result. That's what really drew me to it. And it's also being awesome on the water. Like the being outside is very different than being in the gym. So there's a toughness component to it that especially when we're starting rowing in March in Toronto, like it's pretty icy. So I love that aspect. I love the discomfort of it and, you know, just kind of got drawn in. Now, were you growing up, were you a kid that liked the ocean, that liked hanging out, you know, at the lake or anything like that? Or was <laughs> no? I'm up, or yeah, was yeah. this introduction to like being on the water, was this almost brand new for you? And maybe that's why it was just so awesome because it was this brand new experience. Yeah, the brand newness of it was definitely the case. I wouldn't count myself as an outdoorsy type person. I wasn't a person that did the typical, you know, Canadian skiing and hockey and stuff like that. So being on the water was different because like you're actually very much on the water. If you're in the water, something's wrong, <laughs> right? Like you've done something wrong in rowing. But that aspect was certainly something I didn't know I had that I really enjoyed. And the other component of it is just the mornings. Like morning sunrises are completely underrated when you see them all year long. So you loved it right away. You know, how long did it take you to kind of master the art of what it takes to be a good rower? I remember there was a board game that was uh, called like a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. And I feel like that is very similar to rowing because the actual motions themselves are not that difficult. But the level of conditioning, the level of mentality to compete to your very limit, like that stuff you will, will always be learning about. And then every season is different because you're rowing with different people who have different strengths and weaknesses. So I would say I like I picked up the actual motion fairly quickly, but learning about how to get more out of myself, I think I didn't even figure that out in college all the way to the end, even though we were having some pretty good success in college. But again, I'm still learning about that. And I think master's rowers now would say the same thing, that they're still growing. How important is mentality when it comes to being successful on the water? I mean – Obviously, you want to be strong and you want to be in sync and everything like that. But how important is the mental aspect as far as concentration and focus? I would say it's 100 percent important. It can inform everything that you do all the time. And really, at a certain point, rowing is a suffering game. And so just being willing to suffer for longer than your, than your opponent is all about the mindset that you bring, not just to the moment or not just to that day of competition – but to the previous 365 days of leading up to that. So that's why I think from a coaching side, it can be a little bit exhausting for the athletes when somebody is pressing on you to have that mindset all the time. So that's uh, – yeah, I, I can't underestimate how important the mindset is. Are there other sports that skill set – their skill sets translate well like – if you're recruiting and you find out a kid also in addition to rowing does basketball or oh, whatever, is yeah, there yeah. are there other sports that maybe not by design but just how – what they focus on, the, the muscles and stuff like that that you use that you find that could really help and be an advantage if someone really gets into rowing? I love that question. There's four sports that I actually listen to and listen for when people are telling me about their athletic background. Um, number one is swimming, staring at the black tile on the bottom of the pool, getting in a cold pool in the morning, like all those things where it's just not that enjoyable, but people find ways to make it enjoyable and to find progress. So swimming for sure, people are willing to suffer there. 
Um, the 800 meters in track, when people talk about how that's the most painful event, like we, I love that aspect. If somebody says, hey, you know, like I ran the 100 meter, like that's explosive. It's amazing, but it's probably what, somewhere between 9 and 11 seconds? Like it's not going to be that painful for that long. Certainly hockey. Hockey's another big one. When you're going really hard for 45 seconds, as hard as you possibly can in those shifts, um, I think anaerobically you get really, really good. And there's something about hockey players are tough. They're willing to suffer too. So those are the three that really come up to mind. And then the fourth one a little bit is uh, gymnastics. So if somebody had gymnastics background, they just know where their body is in space. And so the transferring of that to a fluid environment is they're pretty good at that right away. Like they're not ever hamstrung by how hard the skill is. And you mentioned, you know, you're listening for that. When you're recruiting, are those things on your checklist? Like, or are those bonuses? Like you hear that and your ears really perk up? Or is this something you you pursue? You look for kind of, I don't want to say cross training, because a lot of times I don't know that it's by design. It's just kids being kids and playing a lot of different things. But you know, are those things that you are specifically looking for or are those kind of bonus add-ons that will make it make the kid even better? Right. When you said the idea of just kids being kids, that I think has also evolved because there's so much more specialization occurring early. And I think people do see that there is a pipeline of junior and high school rowing to college rowing. So anytime we can find somebody who has played another sport at a high level and really enjoyed it, that's where I think – that they can apply that mindset and also their skill set to rowing in a really good way. They're also generally a little bit healthier because they just have a better athletic, you know, background. But we are looking for that. I think like if you're a good athlete, we think that you're probably you can be good at rowing. But if you don't do those things at a high level, just kind of participating in them probably aren't going to get you where you want to go. How many people are in the boat? For women's races. So for the NCAA championships, we need to field a team of 20 rowers and three coxswains. And the coxswains are the ones that were steering the boat. They're the ones who hold the strategy. They're the ones who um, are keeping the athletes safe. But we have two eights and one four. So a coxed eight is nine people, eight rowers, one coxswain. Um, and we will divide it up so that your fastest eight people will make one eight, the second eight, and then you'll make your four. And they're given a corresponding number of points for the NCAA championship. So you have to be really good in all three events. That's a little different than the uh, men's rowing where their championship is more determined on their varsity eight only. So they will field a second and third and fourth eights. But for us, like we really need that top 20 athletes to do an amazing job. Aside from the coxswain because that's kind of its own role. Yeah. Seats in the boat, how different are the – responsibilities. Like if you were training me, could I pretty much just go in any seat or am I going to be overwhelmed as a novice in certain things and other ones are more just you're, you're rowing? Like I, I'm trying not to simplify too much because I know <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, right. intense and there is so much nuance to it. But but your instinct it, is right. There's, but can yeah. you, is there a translation or a, a lot different from seat to seat? Yes, there there is a lot of differentiation. I once met a guy who raced uh, dog sleds and he talked about having the right dog in the right position to maximize the speed of the sled at the beginning, middle and end of the race. And so for us, we kind of have something similar in that there are leadership qualities and skill sets that really advantage somebody who's in the stern. So that's the person that everyone else is following. And because we're facing backwards, that person 
may also lose sight of the other team the earliest. So they need to have the most amount of uh, determination and perseverance. And also, if they're rowing really well, it's easier for other people to follow them. So you typically have your most experienced people with the most confidence in the stern. In the bow, you usually have people that are a little more skillful. And they um, – because the boat is changing vertical orientation in the water all the time. Like it really it doesn't just go straight. It's bouncing up and down all the time. So the person in the bow has to do a really good job of adjusting how they're moving to not only follow but also to feel the water. When you are putting a boat together, when you're recruiting, when you're putting a team together, are there certain positions that are harder to find than others like football coaches are always looking obviously for quarterback, but they're also always looking for a blindside tackle. Goalies in hockey, big men in basketball. Are there certain seats on that boat, certain positions that are the hardest to recruit or the hardest to find the perfect fit? I wouldn't say it's the hardest from a to find find people with a skill set. I think they can you can pretty much adapt to doing all of them with some good exposure. The hard part for us in particular is that we're looking for the most academically qualified people who are also the tallest and the strongest and the fittest. And so those people are always in demand. I don't think anybody ever feels like they have enough fitness or enough length. So people who can row longer are usually very coveted. And so with that, those people have uh, the chance to row almost anywhere and – you know, we're looking for the people that can maximize those things. So sometimes we'll even look at somebody's wingspan. They maybe they're a little bit shorter, but they have longer arms. That kind of gives them the effect of somebody who's taller. So you rode in college at Yale. Yes. When did the idea of pursuing rowing at that collegiate level kind of crystallize for you? Not just as, boy, that would be great to do, but also, I think I got a legit shot at this. Like, was there a, a moment? I knew I really loved it and I had some teammates that had graduated and were rowing on the Canadian national team and then who were also rowing in Canadian universities. I knew that I was pretty small. I was really skinny <laughs> and so I really wanted to be able to row lightweight and there aren't that many lightweight programs um, in the US. So I just happened to be in my high school coach's office and he fielded a call from uh, a gentleman who changed my life, Mike Irwin. And Mike had asked him, hey, do you have anybody who's skinny that has done a pretty good job on his SATs? And so I was like, I don't know about the SAT part, but I was pretty skinny. So Tony said, hey, Mike, I'm looking at a guy right now. And so Mike brought me down to, to Yale and we had an official visit. And that was a place that I just could really picture myself rowing. And eventually got in. Now, the funny part is, is that Mike is now the also used to coach at Penn as the lightweight coach. And then afterward, he moved to St. Joe's. So he's currently the head coach of heavyweight men's rowing at St. Joe's. So I see him on the river every morning. And like, he basically changed my life. And so every time I'm like, hey, Mike, good morning. Like, this is it's awesome to see you. So but yeah, that's that's how it basically started is the idea of, hey, I could continue this in college. I couldn't believe that it would allow me to, to go to actually study someplace. And then the idea of actually coaching afterward was definitely not on the radar. So that was another <laughs> that's another weird way that that happened. Does Mike appreciate the impact he had on you? I try to tell him. I'm not sure that he uh, – he's a very humble guy and very um, – how am I going to put it? Very generous. So I don't know if he knows how much of a difference it really was. But it – you know, here I am a U.S. citizen primarily because he made that call to my high school coach. How was the transition to college not just from a 
you're taking on an Ivy League education, but you know, collegiate rowing, different country, a lot of play there. How was it that first, like your freshman year, that first year? Oof. I think completely mind blowing. That's why I tend to lower my expectations for recruits coming in because no matter how hard you think you have been going in junior rowing or high school rowing, it's not the same. And I think it's really probably born most of the fact that, hey, if you're 17 or 18 or 19 years old and you're competing against somebody who's 22 and 23, like they're a lot more physically developed. And so you're expected to do all the same training, which may impact you way differently. So I just remember being completely tired all the time um, and then recognizing, hey, wait a second, that's just the way it should be and kind of figuring out the strategies to get past that. But I remember being in awe of my teammates thinking there's no way I can keep up with these people. They're they're like uh, Avengers out there and then gradually working my way to be able to do that. Do you remember the first time when you felt like you kind of got your arms around the experience? Like – when it wasn't overwhelming and I mean, sure you're exhausted always because of the nature of the sport. But was there a, a race or a moment when all of a sudden you kind of felt like, excuse the pun, that your head was above water maybe for the first yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. You know, I would probably say kind of my junior year. Really? Yeah. Even though we were really successful, I mean we were undefeated my freshman year. My sophomore year we were we Lost just two races by a really small fraction and we did it really not – like the crew did a nice job. I got to go over to Henley and race there in front of you know thousands of people. So it was a really neat experience. But I wouldn't say I really felt completely in myself until my junior year and uh, probably not even until the very end of the season where it just felt like we were in full command of what it was that we were trying to do. And so we won with a course record. Later on, we raced at Henley again and raced against one of the Winklevoss twins, you know, who had had the whole Facebook piece happening at that time. That, that's how dated <laughs> we're making the story. That was prior to Bitcoin. So, But yeah, it, it took that long to feel really confident. And I'm really in impressed with my athletes who say like, oh, yeah, I've got to figure it out um, because it certainly wasn't that easy for me. But if I can help them get to that level earlier, it's a, it's a lot more enjoyable. Was there one thing that you, you talked about you guys were so good at the end of that junior year? Like, do you remember a workout or like when you kind of looked around and had that, yeah, this is how it's supposed to work? Yeah, actually, you just jogged my memory about that. We had gone up to Gales Ferry. So Gales Ferry is where the Harvard-Yale race happens. And uh, it's the oldest intercollegiate varsity uh, sporting event. And lightweights don't go up there. So that's like purely a heavyweight event. And so for us to be invited to go and race there or at least to practice there was very special. And I remember we were doing a longer piece and we went off at a very unsustainable clip and held it the entire way and defeated this uh, – our heavyweight – counterparts who were massive guys that, you know, as to give you an idea, at parties, they would just sit on me. Like they were big <laughs> enough that they could just, you know, like laugh and sit on me. You know, if you're 6'5", 220, you could just sit on me and that would be the, like the party joke. But beating those guys in a boat over that distance felt very satisfying and it was like, hey, you know what? We might be okay at this. This is, this is starting to come. Now, the heavyweight coach currently – or the – sorry, the past heavyweight coach who coached those heavyweight crews is now a good friend of mine and he um, sometimes volunteers with us to come and watch the Penn team. So it's kind of neat how all those relationships keep keep coming back up. Now, I think you referenced that coaching was not something on your radar. You graduated in 02 yes. from Yale. 
So where does the door open for coaching? Is it a situation where you want to stay in the sport and maybe, you know, competing isn't realistic? Where's the transition to becoming a coach? Yeah, it's like there was probably a confluence of like three different events that occurred. So number one, I knew that my F1 student visa had one year of practical training um, attached to it. So I knew I only had a year. I went out for the Canadian national team and got cut. So my Olympic dream, I don't think I had really fully understood like how much I would have to pursue it for longer. So I probably got discouraged a little bit too quickly. And then the third part was I knew that I really wanted to live in the U.S., and that, you know, coaching and being paid and being in sports, I'm like, I'm kind of in awe of being here and knowing that there's this is where <laughs> sports gets discussed and, and presented, that all three of those things allowed me to reach out to some different coaches around the league. And I just said, hey, would you, you know, would you take a flyer on me? And so the current coach uh, at Yale, Will Porter, who's now uh, you know great colleague and certainly a great competitor, he gave me my first coaching job. And so that was uh, another drawing it back to coming to Yale and, and being able to compete there. Did coaching take right away? And how is the transition going from a person on the water to telling the kids – on the water, what to do. Did it make sense to you right away? The rowing side certainly did. Uh, the mentality of coaching somebody to gain confidence and knowing exactly what to do and be purposeful, that made sense. I'll tell you the most mundane things like learning how to drive a motor launch. <laughs> I'd never driven a launch before in my life. I didn't even know how to start it. So those little things took some time to, to, to get to. But the feeling of just being part of a team and helping people achieve what they want to achieve, that came very naturally and was very enjoyable. And seeing athletes improve their results and have great results at the end of the season, that was also a, a very kind of positive feedback loop for me where I felt like, hey, that felt satisfying to see them succeed and I want to do that more. So the very next year, I rejoined our lightweight team and coached with my prior head coach, Andy Card. Were you surprised at how much you enjoyed coaching? Like, I mean, obviously, you love the sport, so there was going to be a certain level of enjoyment. But like you talk about that positive feedback loop and helping and all that, did it surprise you how much that kind of got you going? I think it, it really – I don't think I was that surprised. I think I knew that I loved thinking about the sport from a 360-degree perspective. So I put a lot of time into not only the training when I was an athlete but also thinking about ways we could do this better and doing our own research and trying to think of creative ways to do this thing better. So that part came pretty naturally and was really enjoyable. I think the part that was hard is realizing that coaching can be really hard on the people around you too. Mm -hmm. You know, and as a young person, that's one thing. But I think, uh, you know, a shout out to anybody who's related to or married to a coach or as a coach as a parent, like, my goodness, <laughs> you've, you've taken on a big task. We need to take a break. We will have more with Wesley Ng right after this. This is One on One. And we are back on One on One, continuing our conversation with University of Pennsylvania women's rowing coach Wesley Ng. So as you're coaching... When do you start thinking that you want to be a head coach? Because not a lot of times that's not necessarily simultaneous. You know, you you have to come kind of come to those decisions within yourself. And when you were ready, because I think that's also two different times. There's maybe the recognition that I would like to have my own program, and then if you're being honest with yourself, like when you've acquired the skill set to do it. What's kind of the timeline for you on that? 
I was really fortunate to have some coaching mentors that gave me the flexibility to explore my own ideas and to apply them and to test them out in a really safe way. And the structure of the sport when I was coaching at Trinity College right after Yale, I had a head coach, Larry Gluckman, who I still miss him terribly. He was an amazing mentor. But he gave me free license to coach the freshman group there and to apply everything that I possibly could to it. And I think they had a lot of success in doing that. They built their identity. They contributed to the culture of the the group. What's kind of unbelievable is that some of those athletes that were either I recruited or were coaching, they're now head coaches within the Ivy League. <laughs> like so like that influence has has very luckily been there. But then the idea of transitioning to being a head coach, I kind of wanted to find out whether or not my stuff works and to see at a little bit of a higher level, could it be applied? I think that I probably made that transition at a normal time and luckily Larry uh, stayed on as the head coach for the men and I was now the head coach for the women's team there. And he would give me some gentle nudges about, hey, I think you might be misapplying some of your effort in some certain areas. But I don't know. I, like at, at the end of the day, rowing is about moving the boat and I felt pretty confident about that. The development of all the leadership and fundraising and all of those other components, I think that will never end about how to get better at those things. How much did all that stuff – because that's the thing when you take over. I think even with you're an assistant, a lot of times you don't realize everything that comes across the desk when you're the person at the top of the program. Like how long did it take you to kind of – get comfortable with fundraising, with paperwork, with the call at 2 o'clock in the morning because somebody did something stupid. Like all all the things that you've got to clear off before you can get on the water. I know we were talking beforehand about looking at the sports page and uh, looking at all of the different sports. The other thing I really loved as a little kid was franchise mode. <laughs> <laughs> so doing I, it all, <laughs> doing it all. I loved the and the more in depth, the better. So if it meant like, hey, we were naming our our you know fake stadium, like that was something that I would be really interested in. So that idea of building out a full identity was something that came kind of naturally. But you are exactly right that the hard stuff that they don't tell you about is the disciplinary things and the parts where. You know, students are dealing with grief or with difficult things that are happening just from real life. I don't think anybody really prepares you for that. There's no coaching manual that has a specific section about how to be an empathetic person, but there should be <laughs> because like that is the part that, you know, we're, we're taking care of people and we're taking care of somebody's son or daughter and that has to be a, just a gigantic focus all the time. Listening to you talk about, you know, when you were starting at Trinity and some of the things you were trying to do and I think I have saw – your coaching style described your training is outside the box. Like, why do you feel like, you know, you're, you think outside the box when it comes to preparing rowers and give us some context. Like, what do you feel like you do that is different? And it's obviously working. What do you different than maybe what I would see if I visited three or four other teams that would really stand out? I've asked myself that question a lot because, and I'm not sure I have an amazing answer to that. I do think that it's not any one big thing. It's probably a series of little things mm -hmm. that may or may not be imperceptible or sorry, perceptible. And I don't know if they all show up on any one day. I think it's a uh, little bit of a change over a long period of time. And it could be – I think we are looking at it – like the only thing that might be a little different is that we're looking at everything. So – and how all of the different parts fit together. So I love the phrase in football of complementary football, right? Like 
all three phases have to be working together for this to occur. Well, we don't have just three phases. You know, we probably have a hundred phases because the way that you study versus the way that you eat versus the way that you sleep versus the way that you treat the best person on the team versus the worst person on the team, all of those things add up to whether or not you can do this thing at a higher level and enjoy it more. I think that's the other thing in rowing that we often don't, don't do enough of is focus on enjoyment. And if you're enjoying all of the hard work, it doesn't really feel like hard work. So that's kind of where my brain goes to more often is like, could we improve a lot of little things and also be flexible enough to turn the lens on ourselves and figure out maybe what we're doing isn't working um, or could it be better? So at Trinity, you have a ton of success. You want a team NCAA title. You had boats win NCAA titles. When did you – kind of the same question I asked you, like when did you start to feel like you hit your stride as a head coach? Success, yes, but also – understood what it took to be successful, understood what went into the job. And I don't know that we ever master everything like that, but we're comfortable with everything that every day you came in, you were going to be on top of what happened and program was going to be a little better on Tuesday than it was on Monday. And that was going to continue. I think 2012, that was my first summer that I came to Philly. Somebody had asked me to coach at Vesper Boat Club, which is right next door to Penn. I had no idea I would ever be coaching at Penn. But that summer, we coached a group of, I think it was 16 athletes from around the country who decided to row in Philly during the summer. And we had an amazing club nationals and Canadian Henley experience. It was great. I learned a lot from them. Um, I learned how there were areas where I could definitely relax more and certainly areas where I needed to concentrate more. 2013 to 14 at Trinity, uh, we had this enormous group of seniors uh, – sorry, juniors to seniors who developed all the time, had a very good chance to win the NCAAs there um, in 2013, kind of flubbed it a little bit. Um, and I put that a ton on what I did. I mean I just was holding on way too tight but really gave them more leadership in 2014 and they finally break through and win. But seven of the eight people from that boat graduate and the next year we have a completely new varsity that also goes and wins. So that I felt was a really big turning point where I felt like, hey, the what I can teach and what I can share from previous experiences is now transferable. It's not just the athlete. It's not just the one quarterback who knows how to do it. It's that, hey, there's a skill set here that if we can teach this and have people believe in it, that we can do a really good job and be winning at the very top end. Is success more satisfying as a competitor or as a coach or is it the same level but it hits different? I'm pausing because I think the latter. I think it feels just as satisfying. I think that what's very interesting to me is that as a competitor, you really want to celebrate with your teammates. I know I'm really touched by how collegial everyone is on the coaching side when you just see other coaches and competitors that are happy for you that are you know appreciative of, of what your team has accomplished. So like seeing your phone blow up with text messages when things are going really nice, like that's a really – I don't know. That's a very heartwarming feeling. It's different than a feeling of just like pure joy and pure – so it's a little more on the satisfaction side. And you know, you don't want to take away from the athlete's thunder. They're, they've done their thing. They deserve to have a, the starburst of joy as much as they can. Like they don't need the coach around. That's for sure. So it's a little bit different. But it still feels awfully satisfying in both ways. So you have all the success at Trinity. Then you come to Penn at 2015 and you talked about getting that introduction at 
to Boathouse Row in 2012. What's the door opening to Penn? And did your Philly experience then, did that make that much of an impression that you thought if the opportunity in here ever came, this would really be something I would I would be interested in? How did it all come together? Yeah, so after 2012, one of the Trinity alums was the head of U.S. rowing. Okay. His name was Curtis Jordan. He was also the former coach at Princeton. And I emailed Curtis on a whim and just said, hey, Curtis, I have a pretty open summer. Is there anything that I that I could do to add value to the U.S. rowing mission? And he said, hey, why don't you come to Korea with us? We're going to go to the world championships there. And so I was blown away. Like that's ridiculous that somebody you know as new in the sport as me could like would travel with Team USA to Korea. So that was another big exposure part of just saying like, wow, this is the sport at the highest level. And after that event, I helped out a, uh, a crew there, the lightweight quad. They did a nice job. I don't think they needed a lot of my help, but they may have thought so. <laughs> like there were some challenges in Korea. But the next part of that was the U.S. rowing leadership saying, hey, would you like to help out with the under-23 national team? And so getting a chance to work with Dave O'Neill, who's currently the head coach at Texas, and then being named the under-23 head coach in 2015 and 16, and then coaching again in 2017, like all of those things just allowed me to work with a different caliber of athlete. And I think after that 2015 spot, that's when Penn, the Penn job opened up. And one of our key benefactors here at, at Penn is George Weiss. He's a big squash fan. Trinity squash is pretty darn good. And so there was some connection there that I think helped me get a little bit of a, an opportunity to interview. How much did having the Ivy League experience as a student athlete help you hit the ground when you take over an Ivy League program? Because obviously from the rowing standpoint, you're qualified. But the Ivy is just so unique in – I think you referenced earlier the test scores and stuff like that. Like there's recruiting and then there's recruiting in the Ivy League because it's such a unique pond. But how much did kind of understanding what goes into it help you hit the ground running at Penn? I think the academic side was something I was really looking forward to. So at Trinity, I also was able to teach a class in addition to – with another professor. It was a first-year seminar and it was the – it was called Food, Fitness, and the Journey to Self-Discovery. So how's that for a liberal arts <laughs> title for, for, a, for a seminar? But the cool part was it was like first-year students that um, had never known each other and they did a fitness class and they also would immediately come to, from the fitness class and do an academic class. And they were more connected, more in, enthralled with the material. I mean they were inspired and so – it kind of hit home to me that this – what the Ivy League stands for about really trying to marry the athletics and the academics together is really true. It plays out in not only in theory but in reality. So like I think that those two things should always be linked up together. And so my intellectual approach to the sport I think helps um, here at Penn and then also treating the athletic side as something to help you academically. Like if you treat academics like training – you can do a pretty good job too. So long-winded way of saying that I think there is something really neat about how those things work at an Ivy League institution. But I'm also confident they could work out at any institution. When do you feel like you kind of arrived at Penn? What was the first moment when you really felt like you had put the impact on the program and it was yours, if I'm making sense? like Because I think for a while you're – uh, you know, you're building, you're kind of setting the foundation, you're you're installing your culture. Was there a, a moment when you first felt like it was yours? 
I don't know if I've ever really felt like – I feel like I'm just uh, – no, I shouldn't say just a, but like caretaking this thing, right? Like uh, it's temporary and as with everything in the sport, I mean rowing at Penn has been here since like the 1890s. So the idea that I get to be a part of it for a certain amount of time is really amazing. The boathouse renovation was a huge thing, right? Like the idea that I would have any influence on how a new boathouse on Boathouse Row and I mean I'm hoping this thing is going to last also for a century or more. But I would say 2000 – my very first spring, it felt a little bit different in that we made the Ivy League final and were you know, doing an amazing job and finished fourth with athletes that the previous year had been seventh. So that feeling was like, hey, we're on the right track. Winning our first medal in 2018 on the varsity level was pretty big because it meant that, I mean, Penn hadn't been ahead of Brown for a very long time and we somehow snuck it by. And then getting to the NCAAs in 2022, you know, like that was finally getting that over that hump was also big. And so I think there's just a different awareness now, like what we do at Penn is different than at any other place, and we don't have to be apologetic about that. Did you come in with the schedule in your head of when you would like to reach certain points? Because you don't hear it nearly much anymore, but like 20 years ago, you'd hear so much about coaches taking over programs. They had a five-year plan. By year five, we will be in a bowl game or we will be in the Super Bowl or whatever you know the, the situation was. Did you look at it in that terms, like I would like to be at X by, by Y, or was it more – I want us to have success. I want us to get better. I want us to appreciate. Like, how did you approach it? Yeah, I definitely approach it as the year by year piece of like, hey, let's let's make sure that we are making a gradual progression. Let's make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind. Let's make sure that there's an improvement from the experience as well as the performance. So yeah, like that was the the first two, three years were definitely in that standpoint. In that year four to five, I do remember feeling like, hey, we're we're starting to almost get ready to break through. And that's exactly when COVID hit. So that was another reset that allowed us to do a different job of recruiting and a different job of learning about people. And also we moved out of the boathouse <laughs> when it was being constructed. So that was also a, a, a new fresh start. But we never wanted to lose sight of the lessons we had learned from the first five years. And so it's kind of like lessons learned plus the willingness to evolve that I think has made made things different. I think it probably felt like it was taking longer than I wanted it to. Um, I think any coach that says differently is probably, uh, like you said, probably fooling themselves a little bit. But it was still satisfying as it was as it was making that progress up. Now, the last couple of years, I think you guys have been in the NCAA championship, and it's the first time as a team. The last couple of years, so like you've reached certain levels, and does how you approach things change as you reach certain levels? And, and what I mean by that is maybe you recruit a little different. Like when the program's in a different stage of development, you maybe can look at a kid that maybe has a higher upside, but also might be a little, you know, have a lower floor. But when you get to a certain point, you can't take the chance of a kid that has that lower floor. We have to, to shoot higher. Like, does the approach to everything in the program change as the success increases? Yes. Uh, your instinct is exactly right, that the person that we're seeing on the recruiting side just wants to row at a higher level. 
And so they know that, hey, Penn is a place where I can be really successful. I can have a shot at a national championship. I can win the NCAAs here. Like this is something that can happen. So that reality has shifted and I think there is more of a story around what our team is about and how we do things differently. So that is very, very fun to, to see because that was not the way it started where rowing at Penn was about the Philadelphia experience and about Boathouse Row and about the school being amazing and all of those things are true. But now it's also, hey, we can do those things and we can win and that's what we really want to do. The type of recruit that we're taking in terms of upside versus potential versus like where they're already at, I think we are looking at a person that has a higher floor. Um, but we're also really eager to look for those people that can learn late. I feel very confident that we can do a good job of teaching and developing people. Now, we don't want that to be everybody because it really helps to learn from people that are already there. But there are still people that are very young in the sport who can make an amazing impact. So I don't think you need to have a ton of just junior superstars, even though it helps. The whole Boathouse Row and the rowing community in Philadelphia, as an outsider, someone who is not real familiar with the sport, it seems like a really special, unique thing as someone who has coached and competed other places, other country. Is it as neat as it seems to an outsider? It is. I mean, it is a... There's probably only three other places in the world that have the same concentration of rowing when I think about it. I think probably Oxford in England, ton of college boathouses. Uh, London, kind of the same way, probably Boston. But outside of those areas, there's nowhere that has the close concentration of these people that are anywhere from 12 years old to 90 years old that are all rowing in the same body of water and doing it because they love it. So there's something really energizing about that when – and for college kids, it's very tough to go and complain about, oh, I have to wake up when you see the 85-year-old man rowing his antique single in weather that you were a little bit afraid of. Like you would never, never see that. And it is. It's a different experience because at many of our college uh, competitors, they're rowing on bodies of water that – where they are the only ones. And there's something valuable about that too but there's an energy around seeing rowing as not only a sport but like uh, something that is a lifelong endeavor. Um, and I think you get exposed to that here in Philly. Do you love to win or hate to lose more? I would – earlier on, I would have said hating to lose for sure. But I think as a more mature person or at least – I'm not going to say I've reached maturity but I'm trying to be more mature about it. I think that seeing the joy of winning and maybe it's not even the joy of winning as much as it is like the joy of seeing progress, that stuff feels better and better. And I'm not saying like the moral victory progress but like kind of being satisfied with the idea that you've put in a lot of effort, you've made adjustments, you've – you know, like you're, you're taking more joy in the process of getting better, um, which is a touchy-feely way of saying like, hey, I really want to win. But there's – winning looks a lot of different ways. How do you want people that interact with your program at Penn? What's the number one thing you want them to take away from if they get a, into a conversation and Penn comes up? What is the thing you hope that they convey to somebody about what you're doing at Penn? That there's a lot of joy that we're trying to experience while also being as competitive as we as we possibly can. That's That's the thing that gets me excited about coming to the boathouse every day is that I know that our group wants to work really hard. 
but they also seem like they're having a great time doing it and they don't ever really complain. But that's like – that's from an organizational standpoint, that's a really special thing when you have people that are aligned towards one goal. So it's kind of like the joy plus competition. That's where I think are are the watchwords for our for our program. Final question, favorite part of what you do? I think seeing it all come together. So being able to envision it and then gathering the motivated and excited people around us, not only on our team, on our staff, but the team around the team, the community that we have around us. So that's both alums and the other people that work in the athletics department. Like seeing all of those things come together and share and the thing going better, when it all comes together, that is one of the best feelings that I can I can ever experience. Wesley Ng, thanks so much for coming in. Great. Thanks, man. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank University of Pennsylvania head women's rowing coach Wesley Ng for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. You can follow the show on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at one-on-one-pod. You can follow me there as well, at MattLeon1060. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.